Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Hope you're having a good Thursday so far. Coming up on the program, we're going to talk more about how people can now apply for rental support from the province if you've lost income due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We're also going to talk about the call list. It was created by a Victoria woman to help out seniors who are feeling vulnerable and feeling isolated during this time. That and a lot more coming up on the program. But first, we are going to touch on one of the big stories today. And that is the numbers released by the Federal Public Health Agency, the projections that 11,000 to 22,000 Canadians could die of COVID-19 in the coming months. And that is the best case scenario that was outlined earlier today. Deputy Chief Public Health Officer Dr. Howard New says the first wave of the virus is likely not to end for months. If uh, uh, our, our best efforts are successful, then uh, possibly, hopefully, uh, the first wave will end by the summer. But it's not over. The Public Health Agency also says short-term estimates are more reliable, anticipating 500 to 700 total deaths in Canada by the end of the week. Let's bring in Daniel Coombs. He's been on the program before. He's a UBC professor with expertise in mathematical models of pandemic growth and control. He joins us once again on the line. Uh, Dr. Coombs, thank you so much. Or Daniel, thank you so much for being here and, and chatting with us today. Great. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, we've gotten some more modeling in the numbers released since the last time we talked to you. What do you take from the numbers we're hearing from the public health agency? Yeah, so so you just said that the short-term numbers are uh, likely to be more reliable than the long-term numbers, and I, I think that's definitely the case. However, um, the, the, I really like the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada report that came out today. Um, it provides a lot of information about how they're thinking about the epidemic and um, it, it describes, you know, the realm of possibilities uh, going forward. And one of the numbers that stuck out for me, too, was they said that even under the best case terms, the numbers were 4,400 to 44,000 Canadians could die of COVID-19. That, I think, for a lot of people, that seems like a huge range. Yeah, and that reflects um, a lot of the uncertainty around how well the physical distancing provisions are going to work in Canada. We've seen them working in other countries around the world. Um, I just heard that the uh, U.S. Public, Chief Public Health Officer, Anthony Fauci, uh, said that he believes the U.S. is starting to turn a corner with their restrictions. We are a little ahead of them, and I think especially in British Columbia, we are, we are doing better. We've seen the uh, slow downturn in hospitalizations and uh, ICU admissions over the past uh, week or so. Um, so but it, is, it is a very large spread, and I'm not entirely sure if the numbers they're reporting include the possibility of a second wave of, um, of deaths uh, during, during a second wave of the epidemic, perhaps after the summer. Right. And when you're modeling like this or making these projections, how much is, you mentioned New York and looking at other places, how much of it is looking at what we are currently dealing with as far as cases and deaths that we know of in Canada, but then also using numbers from around the world and other countries that might be on a slightly different timeline? Yes, we're, we're just about 100 days into, in, well, I'm about 100 days into even knowing about this epidemic. Uh, and there's we're forced because of the lack of reliable information to to to, to glean numbers from studies all around the world. Um, so, for example, you know the uh, in order to estimate the the duration of time between somebody uh, getting infected 
and showing symptoms or actually even infecting somebody else, uh, we're largely relying on, on numbers that were estimated during the early phase of the epidemic in Singapore and in China. Now, those numbers seem to be uh, ref- reflecting pretty well the experience uh, that we have in Canada, but you're, you're completely right. We have to draw information in from a wide variety of sources. Right, because when we were talking about this earlier and there was uh, looking at other countries, there was the comparison made or the, the the projection made that Canada would have a trajectory closer to, say, South Korea than to what we're seeing in other countries. I hope so. <laughs> uh, and the indications in British Columbia right now are quite positive, and I think uh, Bunny Henry has, has been, been saying that in the, in the last few presentations. This is, of course, absolutely not the time to to slow down on what we're doing. We, we're just seeing the first, the first week of, of really improving numbers in British Columbia. And does it compare as well? I would think it must have to, looking at the measures. I mean, there's been so much talk about wearing masks, uh, the physical distancing, as opposed to a complete lockdown. And certainly there are places, uh, part of China, there have been, um, there's been much written about the complete quarantine. It must look at the differences, doesn't it, of, of the different responses? This is this is true. There have been different responses in different parts of the world, and so far, different outcomes. Although, interestingly, just in the past few days, Singapore has been reporting a big resurgence in cases after they, I think, really felt they had the epidemic under control pretty quickly after it spread there from China. I'd, I'd also like to draw attention to... Um, the, the distribution of cases among different age groups in different countries does seem to be quite different. And, uh, for example, uh, in Italy, there was a, you know, large numbers of cases uh, among the elderly population, and, and that led to, to a lot of deaths because, as, as we, I think, all know, the disease can be um, a lot more dangerous to, to older people. And right. so the, these differences can, um, you know, they can, it's not, it's not purely the, the uh, lockdown measures or, or self-isolation measures that places are taking. It's also how the disease has, has entered into their population so far. And when you mentioned Singapore seeing a spike, is that then, is that a spike in the first wave or is that, was there, do you need a bigger break or a, a bigger pause between the two to say that that country is on its second wave? If you asked me, I would say they're seeing, they're seeing a second wave coming in already. And, and does that help us then see around the world other places that we could see what Singapore did as far as if they relaxed measures or what it did that led to the second wave so quickly? It provides us with information. Uh, one of the things that I'm trying to work on over the next few weeks is, is trying to understand what will happen if, as, as, we, as we begin to lift measures in Canada and British Columbia. What did, we, what did the models, which are increasingly well-parameterized from the you know, wide amount of information that, that we're getting, uh, what, what, will the models, what do the models predict about what might happen, uh, for example, if we allow people to go back to work or you know, open schools, these kinds, of, these kinds of questions I think are going to come increasingly to the fore over the next few weeks. And in, in some ways we're fortunate to have the example of Singapore to look at because it gives us um, information about what could happen. And one more question. When we, when we get these predictions as well, because we hear anything from these measures will be in place at least until the end of August. We heard from the Prime Minister today saying it could be a year, it could be 18 months that we're going to have to keep distancing. Is it possible, given the information we have now, to make those projections? I don't think anyone can really make those projections with any confidence. You know, um, the, the, the different provinces and, and, and the Public Health Agency of Canada are releasing these 
you know, forward-looking predictions and showing the epidemic curves. But I, you know, I, I'm sure if we dig these documents back up again a year from now and compare to what actually happens, we'll, we'll find there are discrepancies, and by then we'll understand the reasons for the discrepancies. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Daniel Coombs, look forward to tomorrow of your work coming out. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. All right. Daniel Coombs is a UBC professor with expertise in mathematical models of pandemic growth. A lot of information released today. So joining us to break down the provincial and federal government announcements is Richard Zussman, Global BC chief online journalist. He's based in Victoria. Richard, thanks so much. Jill, my pleasure as always. Thanks uh, we, for having me. We, we were just talking with a UBC professor who is an expert when it comes to mathematical models. So he was able to walk us through uh, some of the numbers that were released on the pandemic modeling today. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting uh, looking at the best case scenarios and worst case scenarios and that reminder uh, that these numbers are not, these are not, you know, this will happen. It's this could happen depending on what we do. Right, exactly. And that's been the message all along here in British Columbia and from the federal government as well. Every single decision we make matters to the impacts of COVID-19. You know, saying that is just staggering in a sense that we're all in this together. We all have a part to play here. And even if we do everything that we're asked to do, there still will be a lot of people who will die in Canada and British Columbia because of this virus. So, you know, you've gone through the numbers, I know. You know, but it is a little bit staggering to look at in the best case scenario, Canada's looking at anywhere between 11,000 and 22,000 deaths over the course of this pandemic. And, you know, where we fall in that range or if it goes higher is up to people ensuring that they're following the physical distancing rules, especially this weekend when, you know, you look outside and you can see the gorgeous weather to try to remind people to stay home, to stay close to home, go outside and get a bit of fresh air, but but ensure those physical distancing guidelines stay in place. Uh, indeed, a very good advice. Uh, we're also going to be looking at, a bit later on in the show, we're going to look at the mental health money. So this was $5 million yeah. that was announced today. What exactly uh, do we know about that funding and what it will be used for? Yeah, so the money is used mainly for an online focus to sort of shift the way in which mental health supports are distributed to British Columbians. So this is enhancing virtual services. And a lot of it is to, to try to alleviate some of the strain that will go onto the system with more people having mental health concerns. You know, we've seen the seismic shift in our community, uh, in our day-to-day lives, and that is leading to uh, more cases of people having uh, issues with their mental health. And the province wants to ensure there are resources for British Columbians who feel uh, anxiety, who feel the pressure. You know, people are feeling new financial pressures they've never felt before because they may be out of work for the first time and the programs are starting up now, but they may not have that money. There are also other strains, obviously, with remaining home uh, for a large portion of people's days. So there are services. The province outlines them on the website as well as on the COVID-19 app that the BC government has provided, which if you don't have yet, I recommend to anyone listening that's very handy in terms of accessing the services the province has to offer. So it really is a shift to virtual. There are some supports for the most vulnerable. You know, we've seen a number of these steps in terms of those with serious mental health issues. There have been supports throughout this process, including working with the federal government to ensure a clean drug supply for drug users who are often dealing with mental health issues. Today was a little bit separate from that. It was really focused on this idea that everybody is in this. 
everybody can be experiencing mental health issues, and the province is working with a number of providers to provide better access virtually for those services. All right, uh, good information there as well. Uh, we also found out about rent support, that people who have lost their income or are having trouble uh, making the rent, paying the rent, uh, they can now apply to get some help. Yeah, so we'll have more on this tonight. I'm working on a story tonight uh, for the 5 o'clock news, and there'll be uh, something on the news hour as well. And so it's now available. People who have been waiting for the temporary rental supplement, you can now apply. So the program will provide $300 per month for eligible households with no dependents. So it's a little bit of a change here. And $500 per month for eligible households with dependents, eligible roommates will each be able to apply for the supplement. So there's some more details there, a little bit more clarity. The money goes directly to the landlords and will be available for a retroactively April's rent, May and June 2020 rents. And so uh, people who have already paid April rent are still eligible to receive the rental supplement for this month. So important details for people, because as we know, Jill, there are so many renters in British Columbia, uh, many of them struggling to get by. Some have rent payments that are obviously far greater than the $500. So this will just go part of the way. And we're also hearing a lot from landlords who are struggling too, who aren't receiving checks from their tenants. And so this will help with the rental ecosystem that's so integral here. No supports detailed here in terms of business leases. There's been a lot of businesses asking for relief. This is solely focused on that renters program that was already announced. And did you get any indication that there might be information coming for business leases? I think we are getting closer to that, Jill, and, and we've heard a lot of pressure. And, you know, just look at the job loss numbers today, and it's staggering uh, what impact that will have on small businesses. You know, we know that small businesses in some cases are laying off all their staff. There's the support federally for the payroll. But I think we're getting to the point where there are further discussions going on around support from the province in terms of some sort of relief for commercial leases, but we're not there quite yet. All right. Uh, Good information, Richard. Thank you so much. Look forward to your reports tonight. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Talk to you soon. Sounds good. Richard Zussman, Global BC Chief Online Journalist. Uh, He is based in Victoria. Uh, Speaking of the rent support, we are going to check in with the Vancouver Tenants Union. Uh, We've had them on the show uh, within the last couple of weeks uh, to talk a little bit more about the fact that they can now apply, people can now apply, and some more details. One of the big questions we were getting before when this was first announced was roommates, if it was per household or per roommate, if you have a roommate situation. And that was clarified today as well, that each roommate can apply individually for the rent subsidy doesn't have to be per household so we're going to talk about that after the news to the bottom of the hour Uh, then we're going to take your calls have you been able to pay your rent are you depending on the rent subsidy does it go far enough as Richard mentioned even for the people who are qualifying for the $500 subsidy it's uh, probably I can't imagine any scenario where that's going to cover all of your rent is it going to be enough to make up the difference if you are having trouble making ends meet. So we're going to talk about that. Also coming up on the program, we're going to check in with the mayor of Delta. He is calling for the closure of two big parks in that city. A lot of people, though, are saying, wait a minute, if you are trying to get out and socially distance, people need access to these wide open spaces. So isn't there some other solution we could go for or we could find other than closing down the only areas where people probably could be uh, able 
Thanks for being with us. So we touched on this. So with uh, our chat with Richard Zussman over in Victoria, you can now apply for rental support from the province if you have lost income because of COVID-19 and you are having troubles paying the rent. Some more details released today as well on about who can apply for the rental supplement and what it will actually look like when you are applying for that. So let's bring in David Hendry. He is a steering member with the Vancouver Tenants Union. David, thanks for being back on the show with us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Um, I don't know if you've been able to go through the details or see what was announced, but what are your thoughts on the fact that renters can now apply for this support? Well, uh, in the last couple of hours, I've just been going through the details of it, and I, I actually think a lot of renters will be quite angry and really disappointed today. Um, I actually think it's also a bit of a political blunder, in, in my view. Um, you know, since this uh, rental supplement was announced about two weeks ago, uh, what was really messaged was a $500 subsidy for renters. And uh, when people have meager resources and they're planning in a crisis for, for their next month's rent, that, that was kind of the message. So people have been uh, budgeting, you know, expecting $500 off of their next month. And what we found out today in terms of the details, uh, what was confirmed is that it is per household, uh, not per person. Um, And also that the $500 was actually only for people with dependents. So if you don't have dependents, kids, or you're not taking care of uh, anybody else, that means you get $300 per household. So for a lot of people, you know, you can imagine the scenarios if you're, living in a large house uh, with a bunch of roommates, you've got, it it could potentially be that you're splitting $300 between six people. Hmm. And that is not the kind of rent release that we need. Okay, that's what I was unclear of. And we've been getting a lot of email about this. So it says the program will provide $300 per month for eligible households with no dependents, $500 per month for eligible households with dependents. So here's where I guess the the wording of this is interesting because it says eligible roommates will each be able to apply for the supplement. To me, that made it sound like each person would be able to apply for the $300. Okay, and again, I'm. It's been the last uh, hour or so that I've been looking at this. That you, yeah, okay, that does look like it's true. Okay, um, yeah. So that would be better so, then, wouldn't it? If each roommate gets the three hundred dollars, obviously, because I mean, I, I would hope that the blunder wouldn't be so big, like you said, that you would have a house where maybe there are four roommates that are supposed to split three hundred dollars. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. Okay, and and we're just kind of trying to figure out the details here. So that looks like it's true. Um, with it being available, so for people then who were able to pay their rent for April, April 1st, which was only eight days ago, it seems like a lot, a much longer time ago. But so this is retroactive then if people were able to pay the, the rent, but maybe they really had to stretch to do that and could barely do it. What are your thoughts about the fact that it will be uh, retroactive to April and then will also be for May and for June? Right. Well, I, I think that that, that is, can be somewhat helpful. I mean, the larger issue that that we also look at here is is thinking about the burden on low-income earners and and low-income renters. So in in the way that they rolled this out, all of the burden in terms of um, uh, uh, putting all of the proof uh, to get this program is, is put on renters. 
There's a lot of people who uh, don't speak English as a first language. We don't know if there's going to be translation services available. There's a lot of people that don't have access to computers. Um, maybe they used the, the local library or the community center um, to do that, and those are all closed down. So the, the way that this was rolled out has an impact, and, uh, and some of that is going to be on the people that need it the most. So um, there's a lot of questions still. And, um, and it also, you know, for a lot of people, isn't going to be enough. Uh, and it is in addition to the federal funding that was made available, the emergency benefit for workers. But I guess some of the, the concerns there is that is something else that you have to apply for. And some of the issues that you just raised would be issues there as well. Is it your concern that even though these funds have been made available to people, there are going to, there's going to be a certain section of people that, that perhaps aren't going to be able to navigate the system and get them? Yeah, I believe that's very true. Like when I'm looking through the list of different proofs that people have to provide, it's quite extensive. Um, and, you know, we, we don't know what the wait times will look like. Uh, we don't know if uh, how long it will take to administer all of these things. And I wouldn't be so surprised if there's a good number of people that, that aren't able to get through all of this and will just give up. Uh, so what happens in that scenario? And have you been hearing even anecdotally from renters um, who can't pay the rent? Because we do also have uh, the halt on evictions. Uh, the rent can't right. be increased. Are you hearing from people that are in that scenario? Yes, definitely. There, there are a lot of people that don't have money to pay the rent. Um, and, and that's the situation they're in right now. They're waiting um, if they are eligible for income support uh, from the federal government. They're waiting for that, um, and people are just in are just in a waiting pattern, just holding out. And you know what I what I hear um, is that uh, the real pressure right now um, is from landlords who are so concerned about not being able to get the rent or about people cheating the system or something like that. And they're the ones that are they're going to start really pressuring the uh, province to start making exemptions um, on the eviction moratorium. So I think renters, if, if you're angry, if you're disappointed, you really need to start talking to your MLAs. You really need to start making your voices heard. We can't suffer in silence on this. And, uh, and more people need to step up and get involved and also and speak up. Uh, there must be scenarios, there were cases as well where landlords, and I mean, I've been getting email from landlords as too, uh, for, that where they're trying to help their tenants and trying to work with their tenants. Sure, yeah, that, there is the case of that. Um, we've seen, um, sometimes it's a lot of uh, homeowners that might have a basement suite, and sometimes uh, those folks are, are actually quite, you know, um, willing to negotiate with their, with their tenants. Um, but it really depends. You know, that's why this whole good faith uh, negotiation or good faith bargaining thing that uh, was basically suggested as policy um, is really poor policy. Well, as you heard on the news, some more parks closing down to deter people from gathering in public to try and stop the spread of COVID-19. That was the request for those two particular parks, Dees Island and Boundary Bay, the request of Delta Mayor George Harvey. And George Harvey is joining me on the line now. Mayor Harvey, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me here.
so when will they, are they closed now or when do those parks close down? Oh, they're closing down now. And your concern was, and I know you wrote a letter to Metro Vancouver about this. So what was your main concern that people would be gathering there this weekend? Well, on the total uh, Metro Vancouver parks have seen an increase of over 40,000 people last week. It's not the time to be increasing attendance. We're in a pandemic exercise. Boundary Bay Parks and Tenniel Beach, during a normal summer day, we've had problems over the uh, last year on the weekends. Uh, but with this uh, pandemic exercise that we're in right now, uh, it's imperative that we just close these parks. It's just too many people. It's too much an effect on the residential area that is there. And uh, I know some people have been saying that I've, you know, that I've been actually overcautious. And as mayor, I'm not apologizing for that. Um, I'm following Dr. Henry's uh, requirements and directions that over the weekend people should be staying home. And so they're closed until further notice. And what do you say, though, to some of the, the response that I've been hearing and seeing is, is people saying for people that live in particularly condominiums or apartments that live in that neighborhood, so they would be staying in their own neighborhood. That's one of the few places you can still go out and there is enough space to physically distance. Uh, there's lots of space when we don't have a over, you know, overloaded. Provincial parks are now closed. Uh, Vancouver's are, you know, taking steps to reduce some of their uh, activity in their parks. Uh, for people outside of Delta, my message to them is don't come to Delta. Uh, but in the interim, we need to ensure that uh, we're following the direction of the provincial medical health officer and preventing congestion at these parks. And it is congested. Over the weekend, if it wasn't going to be closed, it would have been impossible for us to control it. And impossible in that park rangers just wouldn't be able to, there wouldn't be enough to, to make sure that people were all staying distanced? Well, you're talking thousands of people attending, and that's what's happened uh, over a week ago. Uh, we noticed that we just couldn't control it. And it's a beautiful park. Uh, it's going to be beautiful weather, but it's not the time to leave your house. And we're in a pandemic exercise, as I mentioned. And uh, if I'm being, you know, over over cautious, I don't apologize for it again. Are you concerned at all that people are now going to go to other areas? That it is going to be a nice weekend, and people are going to take the inform- take the message from Dr. Henry, which is you're still okay to go out and get some fresh air as long as you stay close to home and you stay away from other people. Are you concerned at all that other smaller parks or other areas might become crowded? No, these are destination areas, and of course, everybody would like to be on the beach. And unfortunately, in this time, uh, this Easter, uh, we can't allow that. Uh, But there's lots of other areas around neighbourhoods that people can walk. Uh, You've also asked for the ability to enforce the orders of the public health officer uh, at the local level. Uh, Is anything happening with that, or what would you like to be able to do? Well, what we want to do is what we did when we first uh, started uh, working on this pandemic, and that's when I declared a local state of emergency for Delta. That gave us the ability to use our bylaws to ensure that people were following the direction of the provincial medical health officer. Unfortunately, although I do support it, uh, the province put a local uh, did a state of emergency on all cities in the province. There is an exception, though, that's Vancouver, and Vancouver is using their bylaw officers to enforce the provincial health office, officers' directions. And I think and I think that's extremely good for them. But we need that ability to also have enforcement. We've been doing education for over four weeks now. There's still individuals and even businesses that just don't get it. And we need to ensure that we're all protected from this disease, not allowing some people just to open up when it is causing problems. Uh, Vancouver is doing that, but uh, unless they've changed it in the last day, I I think the last time when we talked to the director of parks, he said there'd been more than 1,600 warnings uh, given to people, and they were still going about the ticketing in an educational way, not fining uh, people. Uh, Would you like Delta to be able to find people who are breaking the rules? 
No, I was speaking with regards to businesses that are opening, mm. that were previously closed, and now they're opening. What kinds of businesses? Good, exam- good examples of golf courses. Uh, the golf courses, uh, we actually asked the golf courses to close under a local state of emergency. Uh, now a number of them uh, realize that, uh, that the bylaw associations with that closure are now not avoided by the province, and they're opening. Uh, check one golf course, uh, and they're fully booked Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And I, I, I'm an avid golfer. I get it. But it's not the time to uh, have people gather in, in parking lots. And is it really necessary to golf when it, during a pandemic that we have? No, I don't think so. And I firmly believe that they should be closed. Uh, so as it stands then, those golf courses, they're, they're, they're fine to open even under the provincial rules. Would they face any repercussions under the provincial rules? Or they're, because they're, we haven't gone to a non-essential model, they're fine to operate? Unfortunately, uh, uh, it's impossible for them to, uh, to practice social distancing. Maybe when you're golfing, but uh, when you go there and see the parking lots jammed and people waiting to get on the tee boxes, it's just something we shouldn't be doing right now when we're trying to get over uh, the, the hurdle here to start flattening and keep flattening and reducing that curve. So it just doesn't fit with what we're facing right now. Uh, so what would have to happen, though, for Delta to get that power? Is that even possible at this point? Uh, what, well, we need a direction and approval from the province. And the letter's already into them late yesterday, and we're waiting for a response. And I would imagine you would have marked that urgent and hoping for a quick response. And we've also phoned our North Delta MLA, Ravi Callan, who's been in touch with me almost every other day, if not daily. Uh, so he knows that it's there, and he'll do the best what he can do for Delta. Are, are there any other businesses uh, that are on your radar that you think should be closed? Uh, not at this time, but uh, we have had a number of inquiries of people saying that they're going to open. Uh, and, I, I, you know, it's, the anxiety is building up, as you know. You can appreciate it. And I feel for those people, but we've got to follow the provincial health officer's direction and the federal health officer's direction on getting people to stay home and just do it for a number, number of weeks and perhaps we'll be over it. You know, I wanted to see it get over as, as fast as anybody else, but uh, it's not time to relax and not follow the direction we've been under. All right. And, and again, just to reiterate, so the Dees Island and Boundary Bay Parks are closing down uh, at this point. Are there any other areas? Uh, I know people are being told to stay at home, but are there any other areas in Delta that you think could attract people or that you would like to see and make sure that people avoid this weekend? Well, I don't want to broadcast that because I want it to be used by Delta people, not people coming from other areas. So if you're outside of Delta and you're trying to come here to our parks, stay home. Go to the parks around your, where you actually live. And uh, there is lots about walking opportunities here. You've, you've lived here. If, if not, if you don't, I think you still do live in Leidner. Uh, there's lots of opportunities for walking. All right. Uh, sounds good. And uh, let us know if you hear back from the province. So we'd certainly love to do an update uh, if possible. Absolutely. Take care. All right, Mayor Harvey, thank you so much. That is George Harvey. He is the mayor of Delta. And uh, his call for Dees Island and Boundary Bay Park to close has been answered. Those parks are going to be closed down because of COVID-19. I'm getting a lot of mixed response when it comes to not just in Delta, but the announcement yesterday of all BC parks being closed down. A lot of people emailing me saying, hey, wait a minute, why don't they just stagger parking spots? Why don't they make it to a, a certain number of people and still let 
people get out, socially distance. A lot of people emailing me yesterday saying this is going to force, well, not force, that's not the right word. This is going to entice perhaps people to go into the backcountry to find other crown land that's more desolate, that's more deserted and go there, which in turn then could be a draw on search and rescue, which is not what we want to see this weekend either. What do you think about this? Shoot me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks for being with us. Well, here's a feel-good story, and it's somebody doing a positive thing in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. And joining me to tell that story is CKNW contributor Claire Allen. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jill. Yeah, I think we all need to hear some good news stories throughout this uh, pandemic. And I have a really happy story for everyone from our capital city of Victoria today. Josie Gare, she's a teacher in Victoria, and she has created a seniors-friendly call list so seniors in her community can have some friendly conversations during these isolating times. So this morning, I called Josie, and we spoke about why she decided to start this initiative. I returned from travel, I suppose, almost a month ago now. But So I did a 14-day quarantine, and while I was at home for those 14 days, feeling just a lot of feelings and isolated and kind of you know, scared. I decided to see if we could see if people were interested and and able to help with some senior outreach. So basically, my my partner just made a quick little Google form uh, where people could enter their name, phone number, uh, times they're available to receive a call, and then finally, um, a little bio. Um, And basically, we just pushed it out over Facebook into a couple of like, um, COVID-19 group and over our own social media. And we just had a ton of response. There were so many people that were keen to, to help and, and a lot of people who have a lot of excess time on their hands now because of this and they're, they're wanting to help, but it's hard to, to like get in with any, you know, physical, um, help in town kind of thing. So this was a, was a way that we decided might be good for, um, people to help from the comfort of their own home. So Josie said that, you know, the time that she spent in quarantine made her reflect on how isolation was most likely affecting seniors in her own life. I have two grandmas who live in their own home and and they're doing well, but, you know, it's hard for them to even just have like their few, you know, like bridge groups canceled a week because because those going out outings were so important to them. Um, And then uh, I have a grandma-in-law who's in a home in Victoria, which I think was probably the biggest reason that we started this. Like, we were just like, you know, normally we get her out once or twice a week for a family dinner or for a lunch or something, and and now we were unable to see her, and and that, that felt really hard. So we were just looking for a way to to connect with people that were feeling isolated throughout this crisis. Which is so nice that uh, she's decided to do this and so many people have signed on. Yeah, a lot of people have signed on, Jill. And it's a really, it's a very grassroots initiative, right? Like it's just a Google Doc, essentially. Um, But uh, Josie explained to me how it works. It's pretty cool. You have just a big list that's actually like, I don't know, probably 20 pages long of 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 people's you know name number bio kind of thing and so the idea is that the seniors will receive the list they'll be able to kind of shop around see who they have you know mutual interest with give those people a call 
Um, and so the volunteers were hoping that, um, you know, they are receiving a call maybe, of course, during their availability time, um, and that they just find a way to connect with these seniors who who are lonely, and maybe that's a chat, maybe that's, um, you know, a FaceTime with some tea if they're comfortable. There were some people that offered to do that. The, the hope is just that the volunteers, you know, pick up the phone and, and we'll have a nice friendly chat to just fill someone's time and, and make them feel like they have a friend during this challenging time. Which is uh, great. Now, I'm glad you also asked her about safety because my first response, which unfortunately went to a bad place, was that perhaps somebody could take this uh, who had uh, ulterior uh, motion, uh, ideas about this uh, because we were talking to Isabel McKenzie about this yesterday with the 211 service where people go through criminal checks. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we have heard many times about seniors being quite a vulnerable population and people taking advantage of them that have like nefarious um, ideas or purposes. So, you know, this is volunteer run. And Josie says that she can't really do background checks, unfortunately, of people who volunteer. But she wants to ensure the safeties of seniors who participate in these calls. So she has set up uh, safety measures such as the calls will only be um, outgoing. So seniors are in charge of who they want to call. It's not, you know, they're not just going to be bombarded with a bunch of calls. And she's also, um, there's information in the document on how to block your number if you feel if so inclined to. Also, she says that if you are a senior participating in these calls and you feel unsafe, you can just hang up and inform someone about the incident, such as Josie herself, or uh, if it's a care home that's participating, and then they'll take care of it on their end. So, you know, it's not, I think that's one part where she sees there's kind of a, a gap there, but she's trying, you know, it's a great initiative and she's trying to ensure that people are safe. And she's hoping that everyone who volunteers is just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And so far, Jill, a ton of people have volunteered. Like we said, she has over 170 people on that Google Doc uh, list. And she's hoping that this sort of community outreach will continue even after the pandemic. This is a good time for people to focus on community and focus on making connections. And, you know, if if a senior comes out with a, a few new friends from this and, and vice versa, that might be a really special, like, quote, grandparent kind of experience for some people that might not have grandparents of their own or I would hope that maybe some relationships would continue after this in whatever capacity that looks like for the individual relationship kind of thing. So it's pretty cute. I mean, I thought it was a really nice initiative. You know, I think about my own grandparents during this time and I try to call my grandma like every other day to chat with her because she's, you know, she can't, she's in her 80s. She can't go out as much, even though sometimes she tells me that she is, which I'm very upset about. But, you know, she's isolated in her home. And uh, so I've tried to do this. And it's really nice that Josie has taken on this initiative. And she says that, you know, volunteers are still welcome to sign up for the call list. But right now, she's really hoping to share her senior friendly call list with other care homes or individuals who know of a senior who may like company during this time. So if that sounds like something that you would like to participate in, if you have a connection at a care home, or if you know somebody that would like to be on the list as a senior getting a call, you can email Josie. Her email is Josie Gare. It's J-O-S-I-E. G-A-I-R 
one word at iCloud.com. And I really commend Josie for putting this together because, you know, isolation is something that seniors deal with quite a bit. And um, it's just really nice that she took this initiative to organize something so that we all feel more connected during this time. It sounds good. Absolutely. And I'm sure that uh, she will be getting more and more people uh, taking part in that. Thanks for being with us. Coming up in this half hour, we're going to talk more about the $5 million announced earlier today in mental health support. But first, when you think about social isolation, people in quarantine, there are a lot of scenarios where people are in pretty close spaces and will be staying in those close spaces if they are following the rules for some time to come. We've been hearing about parks closing for fear of people gathering in groups and spreading the virus. And more and more people are being told to stay at home and uh, go out a little bit perhaps, but to stay in your neighborhood and to stay at home as much as you can. Well, that can lead to conflicts. And there is a new service that has been launched. It is a quarantine conflict resolution service to help people in those situations. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Sharon Sutherland, a director of strategic innovation at Mediate BC. Sharon, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. What exactly is this service? Uh, it's an opportunity for people who are having exactly the kinds of conflicts you're talking about, things that are being um, in- increased conflict, where people are too close together, having just too much stress. That could be roommates, that could be family members, it could be neighbors. There's so many different ways in which people are going to be running into different kinds of conflict, and they could benefit from having somebody help them have a conversation, a facilitated conversation about how to move forward and how to avoid the conflict. So we have a group of about 35 mediators at uh, Mediate BC who have all raised their hand to offer some low-cost or even free services, depending on people's um, income rates, um, to help them with those conflicts. And so it doesn't have to be something huge. It can be a family dispute or something that, that under normal circumstances we might think was pretty minor and we would deal with. Absolutely. Um, The kinds of things we're hearing about are things like um, co-parenting plans, for instance, where uh, where people might be living in different locations and are trying to figure out what does that look like? How do we co-parent under this kind of isolation rules and what does that look like? Um, But it can also be roommates. Uh, might not know each other terribly well. One has a job that takes them out into the healthcare world, and the other has some um, immunosuppressed disorder and is concerned about, wait a second, I have to share kitchen space with this person, and they're having difficulty conversing about those kinds of things. Uh, so really, it could be anything. could be just noise. I'm picturing situations where neighbors are sharing a wall and somebody's having to work from home for the first time while a family next door has kids that they're trying to homeschool at the same time. The noise is going to be different than it ever has been before, and people want to retain relationships but have difficult conversations. So that's what the, that's what the service has been designed to support. Uh, so how does somebody access the service? There's an online intake form at the Mediate BC site, um, mediatebc.com, and uh, simply click through that and indicate what the issues are. Um, fairly simple intake form. We'd love it if people would have already talked to the person that they have the conflict with because mediation is voluntary and both people are going to have to agree to participate in the service. But having done that, are, they'll be contacted by somebody at Mediate BC who will walk them through the rest of the intake process. And does it cost anything? 
It depends on income. We're doing a sliding scale um, fee, and the reason we're doing that is recognizing that one of the groups of people who are self-employed and also losing income during this time are mediators on our roster. So these mediators have put up their hand to work for low fees um, on a sliding scale, but we're also super conscious of the fact that some people have lost income altogether, and they simply need to... um, communicate with the service that that's the case and we are offering free services for those people as well. And how is the service actually administered given this time of distancing and people not to going into other people's spaces? Great question. It is a distance mediation and that's that's what it's being referred to as. Um, initial calls will be by phone, but uh, we're doing a lot of Zoom mediation. We're looking at um, other ways that we can participate online with people. Um, so the mediators will talk to whoever it is who's involved in the conflict and figure out what the best service is for them to do it in some distance way. So we won't be coming into the house or bringing people together. And is it binding or what, what happens if one party does it, it says, okay, thanks for the advice, but I don't feel like following that? It's not going to be a matter of advice. It's going to be a matter of the mediator trying to facilitate a discussion where people come up with their own plan and help them to write up their plan into a contract. Um, What that looks like will be different depending on the circumstances, but generally speaking, what we find with mediation is if you put down a plan that you've actually both agreed to, you're both way more likely to stick with it. Could you take it to court? Sure, in some circumstances. But more realistically, this is about just getting some clarity between people about what it is that they agree to and what to do if something goes wrong with the agreement along the way. Right. And, and the mediators, then, are these mediators that were already employed and they're, and they're doing this? Or is it mediators or people who are new to, the, to mediation and get, to get some more practice? Or where are they coming from? The uh, All referrals will be going to mediators who are already on our rosters. So they've already qualified as mediators on the rosters. They all have experience. We have some mediators also who are associates, so they're fully trained mediators. They won't receive a referral directly, but they may participate as a co-mediator because one of the things that really happens with the distance mediation is the need to have actually a second person who's, we sometimes call them the tech friend, but somebody who is facilitating the tech to make sure that everything stays online. So there may be situations with co-mediators to support. Um, One of those mediators might be less experienced. And are there any uh, issues then that are more more serious or deemed too serious that wouldn't be a good fit for this? We definitely will be checking um, about questions of possible violence or concerns around that. That would be the kind of issue that might come up. It would be very typical in the family mediation context in any event to be doing some screening for violence, um, any kind. And, and in this kind of situation where people are locked down together, that's a necessary thing that we need to be talking about with any kind of group is, are there any kind of risk factors? So that discussion will happen privately with each of the parties before a mediation is taken on. And if there's any reason to be concerned, we'll have a conversation with the parties about whether that is something we can continue with or not. All right. And again, where can people go if they uh, are perhaps in a situation where they think this would be a good idea, they could benefit from this? Where can they uh, find out more? MediateBC.com. And uh, they should be able to click right into the quarantine conflict resolution service from the front page. 
Well, as you've been hearing on the news today, the provincial government announced $5 million to be earmarked to expand mental health programs and services in B.C. amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Those new services are going to be launched. They will look a little different from services under normal circumstances. But joining me to talk a bit more about that is Johnny Morris, Chief Executive at the Canadian Mental Health Association, B.C. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us to talk more about this. Thanks so much, Jill, for having me on your show. Uh, Do we know exactly what the $5 million will be spent on? Um, It's spent on a a number of partners, and so I can't speak to to all of those details, uh, including Foundry. You heard Foundry this morning and other partners. Um, But for us at CMHA, um, it's really going to help us expand some key key services. Uh, Bounce Back uh, being one of those services. So some of the funds uh, are going to go there to help increase the number of Bounce Back coaches who are available to deliver uh, depression and anxiety care over the phone over the coming months. Um, There's also um, additional funds to help offer free virtual uh, courses, Living Life to the Full being one of them, too, um, and enhancements for community counselling with uh, a partner of the Community Action Initiative. So those are three ways. There's more uh, where some of the funds are going to expand and strengthen service across the province. And do you know if we have numbers or if you know if there has been an increase in people seeking out mental health services since this pandemic started? Yeah, um, partners, especially in the crisis line uh, service area, are are documenting um, increases in call volumes at crisis lines, uh, and and we partner with them. Um, Also within our um, branch offices in communities across the province and at the division, uh, we definitely have been seeing um, an uptick in in folks uh, wanting to to express um, how they're feeling and how they're doing in relation to uh, um, the the pandemic that's uh, that's happening right now. So definitely an uptick and I think today's announcement um, is a significant recognition on the part of government. This isn't just uh, a physical health crisis with the symptoms related to COVID-19 but as the Premier and the Minister remarked this morning uh, job loss, uh, food insecurity housing insecurity are all really taking a significant toll on on the mental health and well-being of many British Columbians. And with the programs then, are you confident that the way that the programs are being administered in that they can't be face-to-face, obviously, they have to be online or by phone? Will people, will psychologists and other mental health workers be able to connect with people? Yeah, so so Bounce Back um, is something that we've operated for over a decade here in BC and uh, um, we've always delivered that virtually over the phone. It's actually, it was one of the pioneering programs in phone delivery, mental health care. Um, what we're doing with that is building on that history and, and expanding the service to reach more folks. Um, what we know from partners that are funded by the Community Action Initiative, and, and this is what the minister described this morning around community counselling grantees, the, the province has really invested significantly in publicly funded counselling. So more people who don't have access to benefits can access that kind of care. Um, and, and it's incredible how those agencies and, and their link through to on our website have um, pivoted so quickly over the past four weeks to virtualize their care. So they're using secure platforms, they're moving on to telephone delivery. Um, and so um, the pandemic has forced um, in, in very powerful ways innovation uh, to make sure that, that care gets into the, into the right hands. Um, there was a question this morning, Jill, about seniors. And, and I just want to really reassure 
folks that especially with balance back which is telephone delivered um, we want to make sure that it's not just for people who have access to the internet or computers that phone is still a way that people can reach out and care and I just wanted to emphasize that for your listeners this afternoon oh for sure because that is that is a big one and we, we were talking about that on the program earlier as well that it is that is a, a group that can be incredibly isolated and mm-hmm. and maybe is does want to reach out Absolutely. I, I mean, I think many of your listeners have heard the minister this morning reference um, um, 211 and, and, and enhanced linkages for seniors um, over the phone. What we're going to do over the coming days is, um, is work with as many partners as we can to get the word out to senior serving agencies, um, especially for bounce back, um, which really does help folks who are experiencing low mood stress and anxiety, uh, connect with a warm and caring person to walk through um, some, some really good skills and steps to take good care. Um, and hopefully your listeners who, who, who might be tuning in, who uh, uh, might think of seniors in their lives or they might be seniors themselves, uh, bounce back is something to, uh, um, to check out. And are you concerned at all that people might leave it too late or might not realize just how much, how everything has changed and how we don't know when we're going to be on the other side of it, just how much of a toll that can take on your mental health? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question, Jill. Uh, many of us in the mental health sector, both the research and the services side, um, definitely uh, are um, applauding, um, uh, you know, the efforts that are underway as hard as they are physical distancing to keep us safe. Um, inevitably, when, when the directions come from government, and of course, uh, you know, Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Henry has said many times, we're not out of the woods by any means, as, as well as Minister Dix. When the, relaxions, when the restrictions inevitably, hopefully, start to relax over the coming months, we can't forget, and you've, you've hit the nail on the head, Jill, um, the impact upon mental health and well-being, including substance use, will likely continue. Um, the numbers of people who, who are out of work, who are worried about rent, those impacts are, are long-lasting. And so um, we completely welcome this investment today in, in us and partners, and, and we, um, we, we, we definitely encourage government, as they said this morning, to keep an eye on things um, for the need for future investments, not just for us, but for others in the mental health sector and and the health authority system, because we, we believe the need will be there six months from now, maybe a year from now, um, as things start to settle, Jill. All right. Um, and just uh, one other note, too. Does, is there a wide range of it, again, getting the message out there that if somebody does want to access these services, uh, do you need to, I mean, you don't need to talk to a doctor or can you, can you just access these services no matter what it is that, that's bothering you? Yeah, so we we um, so the government's got a, a great list of um, these resources on their website, and, and if folks navigate to us at Canadian Mental Health Association, so cmha.bc.ca forward slash COVID nineteen, it, it should get you there. And what we might do is send something into your your station there, Jill, so you can put it out on your social media. We've we've remove as many barriers as possible to, to gaining access to care. So living life to the full our virtual course, you don't need to see a doctor, you just need to register and sign up. Um, bounce back. So if any of your listeners are worried about low mood, stress or anxiety, 
they can navigate to to our website too, and and there's a spot there um, to to um, sign up yourself, um, especially if you're connected to primary care. We're trying to make those things as easy as possible, and we're exploring other partnerships, Jill, for folks who we know lots of people in BC actually don't have a doctor at all. Um, finding ways where we can actually help refer people out to virtual physicians as well. That's a, that's something in the in the in the in the planning. We're not quite there yet, um, but we've tried to remove as many barriers to to those services as possible um, over the coming weeks. All right, uh, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Thank you, Jill, for for covering the story, and, and happy to come back on your show if you have any other questions as we move forward. All right. Sounds good. That is Johnny Morris, CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association, talking about the $5 million invested into those various programs earlier today. Well, coming up this half hour, we're going to talk more about what restaurants right across the country are doing, uh, coming together, helping each other out and trying to stay in business for the most part during COVID-19. That's coming up in just a few moments. Right now, though, we are going to talk to the owner of Canadian Artisan Foods, a local food distributor uh, based in Victoria and in uh, also in a situation like many other businesses trying to find ways to stay in business. Philippe Taifer joins me on the line now president and owner of Canadian Artisan Foods. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, What is happening with the smaller food producers and uh, in light of COVID-19 and all of the shutdowns that we've seen? Well, um, it's uh, it's very challenging right now. Um, Of course, it's challenging for pretty much all businesses uh, right now, right across the economy, especially small businesses that uh, don't have um, large cash reserves to write out uh, a crisis like this. Uh, What's surprising, though, is that, um, you know, uh, being in the food business, especially selling food to uh, grocery stores, um, you would think that, um, you know, this is a great time because there is so much demand um, and, and our, you know, our heart, uh, goes out to all the the people who uh, are in the restaurant business, the food service uh, people. They're 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 completely shut down. Uh, however, what, what, what's happening and the reason we are launching an initiative is because we work exclusively with small batch artisan food producers uh, from BC and, uh, and and elsewhere in Canada. And what we're finding is that the current um, you know, uh, crisis uh, measures, the distancing measures and others have really impeded the, the traditional uh, avenues uh, for people to buy local specialty food products. So, for example, you know, farmers markets are shut down and are going to stay shut down for the foreseeable future. Food events where consumer shows are huge for, for small brands to both uh, promote and sell foods. They're, they're all shut down. Uh, consumers are being told to shop online, to make few, fewer trips to grocery stores. And the, the impact of that is that there's fewer visits to the, the smaller independent grocery stores. Um, and, and people are rightly concerned about provisioning. Uh, they, they've really been stocking up on the very basics. Um, and, and that tends to favor, you know, the mass-produced brands. Um, and so all of that combined, plus, frankly, some some delays in in uh, in payment um, for, for from you know from some of the, the the grocery chains is putting a lot of pressure on small uh, 
food producers right here in BC, you know, families and individuals who make food for a living and uh, look to feed us with some really good products. Um, their, their, their products are just not being bought in the same uh, in the same volumes as uh, as before the crisis. And I would imagine there's also challenges in getting that food, even still to the smaller grocery stores and the places where you would still be able to sell them. There must be some challenges there. Well, I, actually, I'm I'm proud and happy to say that uh, you know uh, us at, uh, at 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 Canadian Artisan uh, as a distributor and and the other distributors that I know are really, uh, we're, we're delivering, you know, we, we're not allowed to visit the stores anymore, um, again, for social distancing. And so we rely on the staff of the, uh, of the stores, um, whether it's independents or, or large chain locations, to tell us what, what's short. So normally we go and visit all the stores regularly and we can see what's not on the shelf and then we fill the, the shelves that way. We can't do that anymore, but we call the stores, and they help us as best that they can figure out what it is that they're short of, and uh, we we send we send them shipments. So there's no and and our staff, you know, knock on wood, uh, is is healthy, um, and we're we're very careful. Uh, but uh, we we we're there's no disruption to our service in terms of um, shipping the product to the store. It's more that uh, and we're you know the food business is the biggest business in Canada, it's a hundred billion dollars a year. It's got, it's many businesses. And so what I'm highlighting today is the fact that small, you know, small batch artisan specialty food producers from BC are not seeing the same uh, sales volumes because, you know, as I said, if people are going to make one trip this week to go and buy food, a lot of time they go to, you know, they'll go to Costco or, or a big location They'll stock up on a bunch of things, and uh, they're not picking up that little, uh, you know, that little treat that they, they used to get, or or even you know their their favorite peanut butter because it's it's only at an independent or you know things like that. So so it's it's um, it's it's affecting the small brands. So we thought we'd try and do something about it. So you've come up with a plan, this emergency pantry food box. So what is in that? Yeah. Well, basically, uh, we went into our warehouse and uh, we, we, we work with about 100 um, brands. Uh, you know, 90% of it is BC food. It's incredible, Jill. The, the, the quality and, you know, I, I, you know this and, and most people, but, but when, you, when you actually put a box uh, together of, of it's only BC food and it's delicious, it's really not that hard. So we, we've taken 15 of our producers to begin with. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll circle through um, different producers as the weeks go by. But we, we, uh, we decided to start with 15 producers. We put 17 products in a box um, and we're selling this food at wholesale prices. Uh, so it's a hundred dollars for the box, uh, but you're getting uh, a, a, a real deal as a consumer. You're, you're, you can buy, if you bought all these products, it would be more expensive at retail. But because we're doing a deal, we're trying to promote it. We're trying to get uh, more volume to small producers. This is really designed. You don't get to choose much. You get what you get, but the quality is through the roof and the price is really low. So uh, the so far, we, we just launched a few days ago. The response has been tremendous. People are posting about it on Instagram saying, oh, my gosh, this food is amazing. So it's fun. It's like we used to do these boxes for, for Christmas, uh, my wife and I. 
you know, for friends and family and partners. And, and every time we, we get such an amazing response. So if I may, I, I'd like to tell you a little bit about the, the you know, the producers that, that whose products are in the box. Sure. We only have about a minute left, though. So if you want to get the information out there, too, on where people can get the box, you should okay. do that. Okay. Thank you. So uh, you can go to uh, www.canadianartisanonline.com. We deliver right across BC. Uh, we've kept the delivery fee super low. It's just 10 bucks if you're in Vancouver or uh, Victoria area. And uh, we, we, we deliver uh, to your door. And just a few examples. What do we got? We Most of them are actually from Vancouver. So we've got Ace Curries, which is a Beautiful line of curries um, made in Surrey. They grind their own spices. It's the best curries I've ever tasted. We've got honey uh, from Langley. We've got East Crackers. They were on Dragon's Den. They make an amazing keto, vegan, super delicious uh, cracker that's made mostly with, uh, with seeds. We've got peanut butter from Island Note Roastery in uh, Victoria. We've got coffee, Pedro's Organic Coffee. We've got tea. We've got popcorn. We've got chocolate. Um, I could go on. We've got uh, Fraser Valley Gourmet, which is a almond uh, crunch made with uh, real butter and chocolate. So it's 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 a real treat. Uh, we, you know, we try to put some meal solutions in there, like from Field Store Organics and some rice mix from Tilly's Galley. So it's a it's, you get a real great selection, um, and, um, and and it, and the volume that we get through this is actually making a difference. It's it's helping these small brands. These are families and individuals that make food. And, um, and and it does uh, make a difference for them. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much, though, okay. for joining us and talking about this. And people can go to the website. All right. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I've started doing takeout once a week to support restaurants. So I would like to think that this next initiative was inspired completely by me. I'm kidding. It likely was not. In fact, it was not. But... I'm going to continue doing it because it has now become a thing, the Canada Takeout. And Claire Allen is joining me again to talk a little bit more about this and what's happening. Hello again. Hello, Jill. I, too, have been ordering a more takeout than usual because mostly I'm just super unmotivated to cook anymore because I don't really <laughs> want to go to the grocery store, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Like, I have no Fair. motivation to do much. But... Um, I, you know, like p- listeners have been hearing, you know, about the struggles that restaurants have been having and about how they've been really hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. A couple weeks ago, I told you about a survey from Restaurant Canada, which found that 10% of restaurants in Canada have actually permanently closed because of COVID-19. And I'm sure that number has increased since then. That was a couple weeks ago. But this morning, I had a chance to speak with and- uh, Alessandro Vignello. He is the executive chef with Kitchen Table Restaurant Group. And if you're in Vancouver, you probably know some of their restaurants. They include Ask for Luigi, you know, that Italian Mm. restaurant that has like a two-hour lineup to get in. (laughs) Yep. I've been, and I did wait two hours. Uh, Poor House, uh, Pizza Farina, which is delicious, uh, Di Beppe and Farina Alenge in uh, North Vancouver. And so I spoke to him this morning about how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted his restaurants. We have a pretty good following with our with our group of restaurants. You know, it's definitely impacted staffing levels because we have had to lay off quite a few staff, unfortunately, and it's really, really difficult. Poor House is closed temporarily at the moment, but the other restaurants are all open doing takeout and they're doing quite well, all things considered. 
So there it is, takeout, something that you and I have been relying on. Um, but, you know, uh, restaurants have been relying on uh, takeout and delivery to keep their restaurants afloat during this really difficult time. And so there's this new initiative launched. It's called Canada Takeout Day. Well, the group is called Canada Takeout, and they have launched Canada Takeout Day, excuse me, which is coming up next week. National Takeout Day is starting on that Wednesday, April 15th. It's kind of geared towards, obviously, the restaurant industry, which is been hit pretty hard through through all of this and you know it's kind of just creating a little bit of a buzz around community of restaurants in in canada and and really trying to promote people to order takeout or delivery from their favorite restaurants in in whatever city they're in so everybody can find information on uh, canadatakeout.com or the instagram and facebook pages are at canada takeout and um, you can hashtag with hashtag takeout day as well to uh, when you're posting about stuff on social so in order to celebrate, you know, takeout day, mm-hmm. you don't just have to sit alone in your house and stare at your significant other who you've been looking at for like the past, I don't know, month, but you can tune in to an epic online variety show that's going to be streamed on Facebook via Canada's Great Kitchen Party. It's the home edition. It's starting at 5 p.m. on April 15th, and it will include musical entertainment from people like Jim Cuddy, Alan Doyle, Ed Robertson, Barney Bentel, and Tom Cochran. So that'll be pretty cool because you can enjoy your takeout with some entertainment and you know alessandro he says that times are tough for everyone but he really hopes that canadians will support their local restaurant by participating in canada takeout day across the country not just here in bc but right across the country on wednesday april 15th i think it's super important because you know it is a pretty volatile industry and and in a sense that there's not a lot of uh, not a lot of restaurants are you know putting up massive profits you know if you have your favorite your favorite restaurant spots or your you know favorite takeout spots and you want to see them be around when when this is all over in you know hopefully the foreseeable future but uh you know if you want them to still be around then you know we need to support uh support them as much as possible yeah, it makes total sense. So, so this is happening on Wednesday, April 15th. Is the idea that, that it continues or this is one day? Because my fear is that now on that day, there's going to be very long lines and it's going to be a two-hour wait <laughs> from whatever place you order from because your, everybody's on board. For your takeout needs. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I know that this is the first official takeout day and um, they're hoping that, you know, there'll be some other ones as, you know, we're in this for, it seems like, the long haul. So uh, I'm sure we'll have some other takeout days that will be announced and maybe it'll be different entertainment uh, the next time around. But uh, if you want to learn more about Canada Takeout Day, you can visit canadatakeout.com. And uh, Jill, I was actually wondering because I find myself ordering a lot of sushi during this time. So I was wondering what you order. So I've, meal is. I, I've decided that at least in the beginning, and I get that that it's for people who have lost their jobs and such that that, that it's probably not possible. So, uh, but to be as long as I can support local businesses, I'm going to keep doing it. But in the beginning, I'm going to try and do it once a week. And what I'm trying to do is pick restaurants that don't normally do takeout that have had to shift to a takeout mode. So the first week I did Vidges because they were doing a special takeout menu, and then was it yesterday, day before yesterday, I did Anand Chi, which is the the Vietnamese restaurant, which again is much like Ask for Luigi, as you know, generally would have a huge line out the door, uh, but, they're, but they are doing the takeout model now. So I will go back to sushi. I miss sushi because I haven't had it in a while, but uh, that's kind of my whole plan for this.
Yeah, that's great. I like, um, I, I get takeout from Kisu Sushi, um, in Yaletown in Vancouver. They're really great, but I like that idea. Also, what you said about maybe supporting restaurants that don't usually have a takeout model available. Uh, and there's definitely a ton of, uh, options out there. I was just visiting my dad yesterday and he got takeout from Nook where they allowed him, they gave him like pasta that he could cook himself, which is a no- kind of a novelty for him. But, uh, <laughs> he did that. And I thought that was pretty cool that they had that option. And, you know, they don't usually do takeout. So there's a lot of great places that if you can support them, they would really love your business at this time. All right. National Takeout Day. Well, if you've been going to the grocery store, we've been told to try and limit it to once a week. If you can, people still need to buy the essentials. You may have noticed some changes at the grocery store, whether it's footprints on the ground showing you where to stand, not too close to other people, whether it's arrows with some of the grocery stores which have tried to make the lanes one way to avoid people from getting too close, and other physical distancing strategies. And for most of us, we can follow those rules. It's not that difficult. However, Physical distancing can be a challenge for people who are visually impaired. And Diane Bergeron joins me on the line now, the president of CNIB Guide Dogs. Diane, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. What would you say are the biggest challenges right now for people who are visually impaired trying to keep physical distances? Well, there's several issues. First of all, um, there's many people who are blind or partially sighted in this country who live alone who do not have a family member in the household with them to be able to go and get the groceries and and help the the person with their shopping. So they rely on neighbors, friends, and family members that don't live with them to go out. And, of course, they use white canes, guide dogs, and sighted guides. Um, But often sighted guide is very helpful in those situations, having a person actually guide us. But you cannot physically safely guide someone from six feet away. So we need to be uh, holding the person's arm. We need to be close to them. And of course, what's happening is you're going to get your groceries and they're only letting people in one at a time. They're telling you single file. That doesn't work if somebody is guiding you. Uh, And so what are what are people in that scenario doing? Um, Sometimes what's happening, what we're finding is people are being discriminated against. They're being told they cannot have a sighted guide go with them into the store, that they must go one at a time, and they have no option but to leave Um, or have that person go in, which means the person who's blind doesn't get to go and do their own banking. They don't get to do their own groceries or their their own um, pharmaceuticals, pick up their prescriptions. You know, there's privacy issues here. Nobody shouldn't have to give somebody information about their banking. They shouldn't have to have somebody else find out what types of medications they're on. That's a private thing. And so we're asking the general public and businesses to please be a little bit of and demonstrate empathy at this time and understand that not everybody can have physical distancing at all times. Um, we are recommending that anybody who requires a sighted guide, both the guide and the person who's, uh, who has sight loss, wear a mask and use gloves to try and make sure that we follow the best practices as possible to reduce any possible transmission of the, of the virus. Right. Because would a sighted guide then work with, with multiple people? It could be. Because it, it, sometimes we use volunteers. If you're a person who lives alone and you don't have a close relationship with your neighbors, you don't have somebody that can come and help you, uh, CNIB does have uh, what we call vision mates who go and help 
take people groceries or take them out and help them out with things and they might help several people. And what about uh, people who are visually impaired, uh, like you said, uh, that would use a white cane when walking? Uh, But that's got to be even difficult navigating the streets, even when there are other people on the streets right now, making sure you're two meters away from from the general public. Yeah, that's the other issue that we're facing right now is I'm blind myself and I use a guide dog and my dog seriously has no concept of physical distancing or social distancing. She wants to be as close to other people as possible. So we are really requesting that people think about it in the sense of, you know, I can't see you, so I'm relying on you seeing me and staying away from me. Um, It would be very helpful for people as they're passing us to identify that they're there and to let us know we might need a little bit of assistance. So if we do need that, you know, maybe say, you know, I'm over here. Is there anything I can do to help you? And then giving verbal cues to your left, to your right, and and that type of thing would be extremely helpful. And I think just, you know, at this time, we all need each other. It's it's such a hard time for a lot of people. And I think that if we just demonstrate empathy for each other at this time, we will go a long way. I'm glad you said that because I think there's often a bit of confusion about that as well, in that when you see somebody that is visually impaired or has a cane or a dog, you assume that they they value their independence, as we all do, Um, and don't want to overstep, don't want to offend somebody by suggesting that they need help. But I'm glad that you clarified that and said that, especially now, I suppose, that it's okay to do that. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's okay at, at most times if you see someone, you know, that's having a difficulty to, to, you know, identify yourself and say, is there something I can do to help you? And then how can I help you if, if the person needs help? Because, you know, it's not always that they want you to grab them. You know, I, I certainly don't want somebody to just walk over, grab me and start helping me when I don't need it. Um, but, you know, offering assistance, the person can easily say, thank you, I'm fine. Right. Absolutely. And especially with physical distancing, we don't want anybody getting in someone's space and grabbing them or yeah. getting that close to anybody. Um, are you asking businesses as well then to relax or at least to have, you, you mentioned showing empathy to to make, to make know that, that while these measures are in place and we all understand why the measures are in place, it is it can be difficult for some people. Absolutely. Um, so a lot of businesses, when you, you know, people have said to me, well, can't you just get your groceries online? That's fine, but a lot of websites are not accessible to people who have sight loss and who use screen readers or need the large print and the color contrast different than what's on the screen. So often we do have to go out and get uh, physically get our groceries and take care of our um, our essentials. And so we are asking businesses to, you know, just think about it a little bit and understand that it's it's not possible for us to do this without that person with us. If we've got a sighted guide with us, it's because we need it. And please just allow an exception to that rule. We're doing the best we can to try and stay isolated, but we also still we still need to eat. We still need to get our prescriptions. Uh, is it helping at all when some of the stores are having the special hours for seniors? And I would imagine somebody with a sight guide would also fall under <clears throat> that criteria um, to bring a sight guide in, in in that time when they're opening earlier in the morning when it's not as crowded? Yeah, I think that's certainly an option. It's not always an option for every person. Um, keeping in mind that, you know, unfortunately, sighted guides aren't available at every moment that we want them. We have to be uh, flexible and go when it's um, when it's best timing for the other person. 
the other person's working from home and they can only go at a certain time of day. That's that's the only time we have available. So, you know, definitely I would suggest that if it's possible to go early in the morning, that's probably the time to go to make sure that um, you've got the availability uh, to do that in a time frame that people would be a little bit more understanding. But it doesn't change the fact that we are going to have to do those things at regular business hours like other people um, because, you know, they're not available 24-7 like my dog is. No, and it's much easier, I think, for people that, that don't have challenges, that don't have a, a visual impairment, to, to take a lot of those things for granted, even though people have seen their own lives change drastically. Um, it's easier to adapt, I think, without those other challenges. Absolutely. There are so many things right now that people with sight loss are facing that um, I would say someone without a disability uh, doesn't have to live through and doesn't have to go through. And, you know, this is just one of a myriad of things that we're dealing with. Um, But it's one that could be easily taken care of and dealt with if people would, uh, you know, be a little understanding and empathetic.